This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Alec? Well, that was unnecessary. Well, yeah, here's, here's what it does. Here's the gift you just gave, Audrey, you just gave our, the people that are here, especially visitors. They're going to be sitting there thinking for a while, God, he looks like somebody I know. And now you know, and you can get, us, get on with your life, and you can pay. But, but you know, tur- turnabout is fair play, so I have a little story about Audrey. Uh, my wife and I have known Audrey since she was uh, a young teenager, toddler, young uh, and at one point in uh, Audrey's life, she was working in the medical community, and she was uh, working in a, a local clinic. And, and I don't know about you, but one of the moments of uh, when you're in a hospital, you're waiting uh, in the waiting room forever, there's this exciting moment that happens when they open the door and they say, uh, Darren Tyler, and now you're next. And I don't know why you get excited, because basically you're just going to go sit in another room for another two hours and wait again. But... but but you know, you know that like that anticipation that they open the door, is it now? And it, oh no, it's just somebody leaving. And then it's, oh no, it's not you. And well, here's the thing. On the other side of that door are nice and helpful young medical professionals, perhaps even some of you in here. Uh, one of those at one point in her life was a young Audrey who steps out from the door and she looks down at the clipboard and does what happens sometimes, looks at the name and thinks, I don't know how to pronounce that. And she's looking at it, and I'm assuming a little bit of nervousness, maybe some uh, heart rate acceleration, because this, this can't be right. This is, there's no way this is the name, but it's what it says. So she says, oh, shady, sh- sh- shady Nasty? Shady Nasty. I, I think... Uh, <laughs> I think it was uh, Jace Robertson who said once, uh, if you don't know what you're doing, it's best that you do it quickly. (laughs) So she says, shady nasty, and at that moment, a uh, very um, displeased mother stands to her feet and grabs her little child by the hand and comes lunging at Audrey and says, you did not just call my baby shady nasty. It's Shadynasty. One hundred percent true story. And here's the thing if you miss the comma at the top. You can turn your Shia Dynasty right into a shady nasty. <laughs> and the, the reason I'm actually sharing that with you, there actually is a reason besides just getting back at Audrey, uh, is your identity. Like whoever gave you your name, whoever gives you your identity, that's who you better be paying attention to. Because that young girl, she's probably 18 by now, I don't know. And over the years, that's probably not the last time that happened to her. 
And so who, which voice does she listen to? Does she listen to the, the shady, nasty of the world, or does she own what her mama gave her? She's a dynasty. Like, there, there's a statement in that name. And in this journey that we find ourselves in the book of John, Jesus is moving into this place where he's, he's encountering the first of his disciples. He's giving them their identities. Some of them he's changing their names. All of them he's recognizing something in them that the world has tried to steal away from them. And in chapter 1, verse 47, just towards the end, he actually encounters a guy named Nathaniel for the first time. Now, by this point, he's talked with Simon and, and Peter, and, and they basically, hey, a, a guy named Philip says, hey, I'm going to go get my buddy, Nathaniel, and bring him back. He's not going to believe all this stuff that's happening here. And when he goes and gets Nathaniel, Nathaniel comes back, and in verse 47, it says, when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel asks the legitimate question, which is, how do you know me? I've never met you before. We're not Facebook friends. I've never seen you before. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip even called you. And at that moment, uh, young Nathaniel's like, whoa, how did you know that that's where I was? Like, and, and it is blowing him away so much. And the things that he's heard, he, he, his response is, look, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. And it's like, man, that, you think that? That's just a parlor trick. Let me tell you, you're going to see greater things than that. He then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. A very, very specific statement that any Jewish ear would have recognized as Jacob and a ladder with angels. And he did not say you're going to see angels ascending and descending while Jesus was watching, while he's cheering him on, but on him. He's saying, I am Jacob's ladder. That's a profound statement. How does he know Nathaniel? How does he know you? That's what God's word wants to share with us today. So let's pray before we enter into that. Heavenly Father, would you give us just your word for us this morning? Lord, I pray that as we are gathered here together as brothers and sisters and setting slaves free and there's just the blessings of getting to be a part of a church that isn't here just to grow ourselves but a church that is here to just be a conduit of your your love your resources to the city in front of us and to the world around us father as we're gathered this morning there are wonderful and amazing churches that are gathering right now. Michael and Cindy Easley at Stonebridge Bible Church. Lord, they've been so faithful for so long and you've been blessing that church and that family and I pray that you'll just be all over them this morning. And For our, our buddy Jason Cruz at Clearview Church up in Franklin, he's 
been breathing life, been back into a church that's been there a long time and life is being breathed in there for what you're doing there. And Lord, I'm thinking of my, my friend John at Vineyard Church up in Franklin. Man, that dude has been so faithful for so long and we just pray that you'll just love on him and his family today. And as we come together here in this community, we are all lifting up the name of Jesus together. And you said when we lift you up that you will draw all men unto you. Our job is to lift up. Your job is to do the drawing. So we'll do that this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I, I want to say this uh, before I go any further. Part of the reason that we have been planting, sending church to Place of Hope is because it is a gift to a bunch of brothers and sisters there who are experiencing freedom, but they're, 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 it's inpatient. They're there. They're, not, you know, they, they're there all week long, so we get a chance to bring hope and love and Jesus to them. And it also gives us a chance to take a mission trip without even having to book a ticket. I think you, if you wanted to fly to Columbia, you got to take the connection through Kolioka, but you can actually drive there you know, just as fast. But it's a chance to love on them, and I'm going to say one more thing that it gives us a chance we had to turn away 15 cars this morning in the second service. And it just breaks my heart. It makes me so sad. And I feel like we have two choices. One is go to the three services and run for the, you know. But we just feel like Jesus wants to do something a little bit different. And so on September 11th, when we uh, have our next Place of Hope gathering, would you prayerfully consider being a part of a uh, on that Sunday, we're not asking you to do it every Sunday, by no means, but once a month, once every five to six weeks, would you prayerfully consider being a part of the 100 and 120 people? It gives us 35 extra cars in the parking lot. We wouldn't have had to turn anybody away today. It would have been amazing. Um, and just so you know, when we do turn them away, I've just maybe you've been turned away, so you already know this. Um, we actually give them a little gift card as our little thank you or sorry, and then we actually give them a card with some other church names of some other churches that we really love and we really support. So we definitely want to give them an option, but of course, I'd love that option for them to be able to worship with us. So that's just something that's on my heart to ask you to prayerfully consider on September 11th with the next time that you uh, uh, be, be watching the emails, be watching our socials for the chance to register for that when it comes up. So that said, how do you know me? That's the question that Nathaniel asked Jesus, and it's probably the question that you and I don't know is maybe the most important question in our lifetime is, how does God know me? If, 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 if Jesus, right, is who he says he is, like, how does he know me? Not, not just how does he know my name, but how, how does he know me relationship-wise? How do, how do I know my wife, right? We're married, right? We, we know each other. How does Jesus know me is the question that Nathaniel is saying. How did you even know who I was to begin with? And it's so much deeper than how did you just know who I was to begin with? How did you know me? You looked inside of, of me. And in these next few minutes, the question's kind of asked in a way that's pretty profound because we'll start with like the first question, who is John? John the Baptist. That wasn't his uh, church. He wasn't like John the Second Baptist, John the Episcopalian, or John the Lutheran. It was John the Baptist because he was baptizing people. John the Baptist. Who, who was he? And the second question from that is then, if that's who is Jesus, so who is John, who is Jesus? And 
in answering those two questions, it sort of sets us up to ask a pretty important question for our own lives, which is, well, in light of that, who, who am I? Because when you think about the question of who am I, the identity question is one that is being thrown at us across the board. It's not new. It's not brand new in our generation. In fact, culture has always tried to have a voice at telling people who we are. But the problem with letting culture tell you who you are is you first have to ask the question, which culture wins? Whose culture gets to tell me who I am? Right? Because I'll tell you which culture I want to tell me who I am. Uh, the Haitian culture. Because I'm a full-figured man, okay? I don't know if you're familiar. familiar. I'm just, you know, a little extra cushion. When I go to Haiti, they think I'm rich. Because that guy eats way more than he should. He must be loaded. What a beautiful man. See, I want that culture telling me who I am. Right? But no, I'm in this culture where I like, you know, six-pack, uh, like, I mean, of Coke, I got a six-pack of Diet Coke, but that's, I don't have any, like, but the, the, the culture telling you who you are, you have to start with which culture it is, and then at what part in the culture gets to tell you who you are, because that stuff changes regularly. I mean, at a half of a century of living, I'm going to tell you this right now, entire clothing styles have come, they have gone, and they are now back again. And I'm telling you, some of these, they weren't right the first time. Y'all and your mullets. Good luck with that. At some point, you're going to see a photograph of yourself and think, whoa, <laughs> what was I thinking? Now, so far, parachute pants have not made the comeback, but, but mom jeans are back. Mom jeans were in the 80s, and they're back. We went through a little ill-fated uh, bell-bottoms thing, but that seems to have fizzled out. But the point is, what culture, it, it, it just changes. It changes all the time. And if you let politics do it, oof. I've been around long enough to watch two political parties take the exact opposite stance on the same issue and then flip, sometimes in less than a year. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, man, I thought, we were, I thought we all were doing this. And like, no, apparently we didn't. We all changed. And now they're all doing this. And it flipped to the other side. If you're letting your political identity tell you who you are, good luck with that. And if you're letting your friends tell you who you are, good luck with that as well. I had a lot of great friends in high school. And you know who I thought I was? John Cougar Mellencamp with a straight face because my friends were the rockers. Like I was not, you'll find no surprise in this, but I was not the athlete, you know, in high school. So I was like the rock and roll guy. So my friends told me who I was and I told them who I, they were and we sort of gathered together in this group. And, and it's, you know, this again, if anybody that works any sort of public education or in, in youth ministry, it still happens today where this group sort of finds each other and this group finds each other and then you build your identity based upon your friends. Not an inherently sinful thing, it's just a very 
flimsy way to build an identity because your friends, look, I love the great theologian and poet Michael W. Smith, but friends are friends forever if the Lord's the Lord of them didn't work out in my high school friend group. Do you know what I'm saying? Like most of those guys that I was buddies with, I haven't talked to 20 years. My entire life was my high school friends. I talked to maybe one, two of them now. Again, nothing wrong. It's just how life works. If your identity is built on anything that is flimsy, anything that is squishy or arbitrary, capricious, it's just exhausting. So when we get to the question of how do you know me, the question that Nathaniel is asking, we start with the question of who was John because that was the, a legitimate question for John himself. Like, who's John the Baptist? And it's a good example for us because of what John the Baptist was really keenly aware of. And by the way, one of the greatest ways when you're talking about your identity uh, is the process of elimination. You know what I'm saying? Like, who am I not is a, not a bad place to start. And John the Baptist knew who he was not. The, the people came from the leaders, the Sanhedrin, these were the bigwigs, sent some people out to ask him, are you Elijah, right? Are, are you Messiah? Are, are you the prophet? And to those answers, he said the same thing, I am not. And by the way, if you're a follower of Jesus or not, one of the best truths that you could take into your heart is the, I am not your savior. Codependency, relationships that get wrapped up in it is always, generally speaking, always about someone trying to be someone else's savior. And if you can get that out of your head, it'll make your marriage better, it'll make your parenting better, it'll make your life better. I am not Jesus. <laughs> I am not Messiah. I am not your Savior. John the Baptist was really good at saying, I am not he. Now, I'm going to point you to him. That's my job. And by the way, as your pastor, heads up, I'm not your Savior either. If you're looking to me, to be your savior? Buddy, bad call. I am not your savior, but I can point you to the one that is Jesus. And John the Baptist saying, like, I'm not he. He's not allowing the politics of the day to tell him who his identity is. He's not allowing the culture to tell him who he is. He is not allowing his friends to tell him who he is. He's saying, I am not. They all wanted him to be all of these different things. And he is not, and what he built his identity on was not on the culture, not on the politics, not on his friends, but he built it on God's word. Because when they ask him, well then, who are you? If you're not these things, who are you? And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, when he says, I'm the guy, I'm the one calling in the wilderness, uh, make the way of the Lord. Like He was allowing God, allowing God's word to tell him who he wasn't, but also to tell him who he was. And that meant that John the Baptist, knowing who he was, that no matter what the circumstances that 
faced him. And by the way, spoiler alert, in about a chapter or two, his head's going to bounce across the floor. He, he has to face some dreadful situations, but he knew who he was, so he didn't fold like a napkin. He didn't draw back because he wasn't trying to build his identity on something that would change or that didn't have a foundation. But knowing who he was, he was an honorable man and we still know his name to this day because he lived out of the identity that God gave him, not out of the one that the world wanted to put on him. Now that's a theological 30,000 foot view. Can I offer you an insight into how that is playing out in our culture right now. And I do this with, hopefully with as much humility as I can, with as much empathy and with as much love and compassion as I can. But the culture we're in right now is telling us that whether it's politics, whether it's your friends, whether the big, big picture of all of that is those things are now pointing us back to that the best way to get your identity is from what's inside of you. Look deep inside, and that's where it's every Pixar movie, every Disney film, most of the rom-coms, like the entire message. It's like if there was a catechism of the United States, it would say that your identity comes from within, and if you look deep inside, that's how you'll know who you are. There's an actress and a singer that most of us know, and she was quite, quite famous from television, from uh, music, and, and, and because she was part of a Hollywood machine that treated a, her not as a person, but as a product, and you know, there was abuse that happened in her life, and all kinds of, so I say that because we, when you say this, this is not a problem, this is a person that I'm talking about. And most of you know her, her name is Demi Lovato. And Demi Lovato, as a young person growing up in this culture that was being told that you can and should look deep inside and, and however you feel that's what your identity comes from resulted in her at some point saying, you know what, I no longer identify as a, a female, now I'm, I'm, a, I'm a they. And, and, and this, is just, this is just like, uh, like last month, the Washington Post, this, this piece on her and, and it talks, uh, this is just a quote from, from her. She says, I'm just, I'm such a fluid person, Lovato said, who came out non-binary in 2021. She told the host when asked about their pronouns. But recently, I've been feeling more feminine, so I've adopted she, her again. Did you, did you hear what she said there? Like, I'm feeling this now, so because I'm going by the feeling inside of me, I'm going to change. And you can see the problem even in the, in the writing here. Because they refer to her as they, right? And then they refer to her as she. Like when, you're, when it changes, it really is complex for everybody then. If, if you want to honor somebody in, that, in the pronoun, like if, but they keep changing them all the time, it's, it's their confusion. It's your confusion. It's allowing your feelings to tell you what it is and who you are. It doesn't give you a firm foundation, and I don't say this judgmentally at her. I'm not angry. This is, I'm sad and I'm hopeful that maybe our society could look at the madness of telling our children that however you feel is how you should identify and identify, like say, you know, that's actually not working very well right now. The, this is not scientific at all. 
goes on to say this in this piece that there's research that was recently uh, from the the Pew Research Center that about 1% of the U.S. population identifies as trans or non-binary. The survey also found, listen to this sentence, that young adults were the most likely to identify that way. Again, if it's science, wouldn't it tell you that it shouldn't be just young people, it should be across the board, or that it shouldn't be just mostly California and Ohio should have just as many as California, but it's not because there is an influence that's coming not just from inside, but from friends that are telling them that they're looking inside, and the culture is beginning to shift inside of our young people to a place that's causing depression, causing uh, children to make terrible decisions about their lives, ending their lives early, not because they're being persecuted, but because they're being shoved into this hole of all these choices. What if I choose the wrong one? What if I'm now committed and I've had surgery and the Children's Hospital in Boston gave me surgery and they gave me medication? What if the Houston... These medical professionals that are doing surgery and hormone blocking on children, this is a crime against humanity. This is not just a bad decision. I don't mean to be glib, but when I wanted to look like Bon Jovi at 16 years old, had somebody surgically altered me to do that, can you imagine what my life would have been like? It sounded perfectly reasonable at 16 years old. And I know that sounds glib, but it's a, there's a point I'm trying to make that by allowing, if that is the cultural norm is that now they feel this way and because they felt this way, they need to be affirmed this way. Parents of children, I'll bet 90% of our job is helping our children know what is a good decision and a bad decision. Right? I mean, I joke with this about my son. He's sitting here, so sorry if this is embarrassing, but... He's like, oh, we're long past that. <laughs> That's coming up in therapy someday. The, the human brain, you understand the male brain is not fully formed until you're like 25 years old, right? So when, you're, when I look back to when I was 20, right, she's going, that explains so much. <laughs> there you go. But no, when you look back at 20 years old, you think, goo, what was I thinking? I'm so embarrassed. The answer was, you weren't. Your frontal lobe was not fully formed. So one of the things I've told my son is that, look, okay, if you were born without legs, for instance, you would need me to help you use my legs. Like, you know, I would be the guy pushing you around with my legs in, okay? Your frontal lobe is not there. Lean on my frontal lobe to help you get some decisions here. Just maybe I might know some things from the frontal lobe, and someday yours will be fully formed. But but we're telling 12-year-olds I don't even know if they have a frontal lobe at that point, make these decisions that are life-altering and allowing medical professionals to permanently alter their bodies. God forgive, have mercy on this country for allowing that to happen. The identity that is coming from inside, and I don't, look, some of y'all getting uncomfortable because you think I'm being political. This is not a political thing. This is a human rights issue. I'm... (laughs) 
I grew up getting bullied, and I don't like bullies even a little bit. And there are some healthcare professionals that are as condescending and bully as anybody I ever encountered in the back streets of Superior, Nebraska. And just because they have a diploma doesn't mean they get to get away with it. Well, none of that was in the sermon, so, um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Whew, six minutes. Okay, so, here's what I want you to hear me say. If your identity is coming from culture, and, and I, I, obviously I'm talking specifically about gender, but that's across the board. It's political, and it's Republican, or it's Democrat. Do you understand me? Okay. It is cultural, it, like across the board. Your identity, if it's coming from anything else, anyone else but someone that you can trust, someone that you know is good, someone that you know is qualified to tell you, then you are asking for trouble, which is why the question that's important, not just who is John, but who is Jesus? Because as Je- if, listen to me, if Jesus is who he says he is, right, then I am who he says I am. That's because Jesus says he's God, right? Jesus said he's the son of man, but let's say that he's the conquering king. Let's say he's the anointed one. Let all those prophecies that were being fulfilled in him, let's say it's all true, but how could we know that we can trust him? Because he might be a conquering king, but so was Julius Caesar, right? He might be an anointed one, but so was David Koresh, How do we know if he makes these claims that he's good and that I can trust him? And John says it right here. Behold the Lamb of God. He didn't say behold the conquering king. He didn't say behold the anointed one. Behold the Lamb of God. And he's using language that any Jewish listener immediately understood. Abraham taking his 33-year-old son up a mountain. Abraham, 30, Isaac was 33. He was a willing participant. He was not tied up and held there in child abuse. He was a willing participant at 33 years old, following his father. And on the way up this mountain for the sacrifice, he says to his dad, hey, uh, Doing the, doing the inventory su- uh, supply count here, and I'm noticing we're missing the ram. <laughs> and Abraham said, God, listen, God will provide himself the lamb. But look, what, do you, what he said was not God will provide a lamb himself. He will provide himself as the ram. He's providing himself the ram. You go into Exodus Right? And, and, and the people of Israel and the, and the Egyptians and God, at this point after these plagues, this angel of death is going to pass over and he says to the people in that community, by the way, Egyptians or Jews, if you take the blood of a lamb and put it on your doorpost, anyone who does that will not die. Either the lamb dies or your son dies, choose the lamb. 
There's language that they would have understood. Isaiah 53, as a lamb led to the slaughter, he went, didn't say a word. The other thing, the beautiful picture, we used to raise lambs and we couldn't really eat them because my wife kept naming them and it was a problem. But, but the th- <laughs> Do you know how a lamb goes to the slaughter? Easily. They don't bite, they don't run. They're just happy to be there. And then they're on someone's plate and like, well, that that didn't go the way I thought. But when it's a lamb, there's a reason why God used the imagery of a lamb because a lamb doesn't fight back. A lamb doesn't kick and doesn't scratch. A lamb goes willingly and quietly and that was the way that Jesus went. And what I'm saying to you is that if you're an anointed king, if you're a conqueror, if you are uh, the Messiah and you're the lamb, it means that you are good and that I can trust that you have my best interests in mind. Not only do you know what's best for me, you want what's best for me, and you proved it because you laid down your life for my sins. That's who Jesus is, and that's why the gospel is so important that he's not just some good teacher, that he's not just some good prophet, that he's not just a Messiah, but that he is the Lamb of God. And in 1 John 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, he talks about that Lamb again, that he would be the atoning. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and not just my no, takes away my sins, and not just my sins, but the sins of the whole world, making an atoning sacrifice by his blood for you and for me. Behold the Lamb of God. That is who Jesus is. And because he is who he says he is, I am who he says I am. And who does he say I am? John chapter one, verse 12. We were there a couple weeks ago. He said, and to all those who believe on his name, I give them the power to become the sons of God. Now, some of your Bibles, like mine, I, I have the NIV, which is the nearly inspired version. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's so close. <laughs> they tried to be modern and update it, so we, we, your version might say the children of God, sons and daughters of God, but that's not, what, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, the sons of God. Now, some of you, your butt cheeks got a little tight. You're thinking, well, that is, that, ew, that's misogynistic. He's so misogynistic. The Bible's misogynistic. Listen to me. Jesus made the statement that sons of God in a culture where only the sons received an inheritance. Okay, just a couple books later, Paul tells us in Christ there is no male, there is no female. You understand the Bible is the least misogynist book on the planet because Jesus was saying that you as a daughter of God Tracy, as a daughter of God, in Christ, no male or female, you get an inheritance that a son, we're not allowing the culture to tell Tracy her identity. God is telling her her identity, right? And you get the same inheritance as a son. He's saying the culture said it was the sons, but that's the culture, that's not God. God says that you and me are the sons of God. Now you can say sons of God, children of God, and you can neuter that passage and you lose the power of what Jesus was saying. Who are you? Who am I? I am a son of God.
I was a son of God when I was 10. I was a son of God when I was 15. We, we joke, my wife's been married to like five different men and all of them have been me. But the thread of that from the mullet to the whatever televangelist thing I got going on now, like what, all that, the one common thread through all of that is I'm a son of God. And you know what a son of God does? He goes boldly into the throne room. When my kids were little, you I mean, y'all, you know, some of you young parents, maybe you already had this happen where you got busted, you know what I'm saying? Because what happened, your child came boldly into your throne room <laughs> and saw something they cannot unsee. We've always locked our doors, just so you know. Because our children are bold. <laughs> they're boldly into the bathroom, that throne room. They're boldly into my office. They're boldly. And you know why? Because they're my children. And my children are not an interruption of my work. They are my work. That's the access that you have to our Father. Hebrews tells us to go boldly into the throne room of grace in your time of need. Writing in a time when kings... I mean, literally, in the time when the Caesars of Nero, I mean, the crazy, who would, who would be crazy enough to burst into the emperor's throne room and not get their head chopped off? His son, his little boy. Unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. For all those who believe, he gave the power to become the sons of God. And when you become a son of God, you do what Nathaniel did, what Philip, what Peter. You, when you're a son of God, you go be wherever your daddy is. Because wherever your daddy is, if he's awesome, it's going to be awesome. His pantry is full. <laughs> his fridge is stocked. And his door is unlocked for you. What would your life be like if that's how you woke up Reminding yourself of who you are. What would your life be like? Oh, man, I just really blew it because I was over here trying to fix this myself. I do that all the time. I say I'm not the Messiah, and then I spend like a couple days trying to be the Messiah, trying to fix something because I've not gone to God in prayer with it. And in those moments of, oh, I'm sorry, God, back into the throne room in my time of need, and what do I find? Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. I don't know if you've believed on him before, but today would be a good day, a great day to start, to believe that Jesus is who he said he is, the atoning sacrifice for your sin, the belief of, I wanted a lawyer, I wanted a leader, I wanted a king, and what I needed was a lamb. That's what you need. It's what I need. I want to pray for you before we go. In fact, go ahead and stand to your feet because we gotta, we got to get you home. But If you've never trusted in Christ for the first time, those two ladies at Place of Hope came down to Eric last week and said, I, I just want whatever it is that changed your life. You were, you were clearly born again and something happened. I want that in my life. If you've never had that experience, you want that. There's going to be some people out at that information table that would love to pray with you this morning. These are prayer warriors. But don't leave here today without having a chance to pray, pray with somebody. So I'm going to pray with you now as a group. So Heavenly Father, for those that are
today learning to trust in you. Lord, you are not a lamb of God. You are the lamb of God. Thousands of lambs came before, but you were the last because you were the lamb, the lamb of God. And you took away the sins of the world. You, you Lord, have the power, the authority to give me my identity. But Lord, you're so good. You're giving me the identity that's the one that I needed from the very beginning. Lord, I lift up, I don't know Demi Lovato, I don't know anything about her story, but she is not a a problem, she's a person. And she's a person that you love. Lord, would you find a way to break through to give her and so many others in our culture freedom from this idea that I'm torturing myself trying to find this identity that you've already given to us freely. For God so loved the world that you sent your only begotten son that whosoever would believe in you would not perish but would have everlasting life. Let that message rise clearly through the media, through culture, but through our own hearts first. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen.